going on and welcome to episode three of But I Digress. As always, I'm your host, Warren, affectionately known as Chris by some people. And I've got a pretty interesting podcast today. Uh, Today we're going to talk about O.J. Simpson. We're going to talk about the incident that happened between a Warriors investor and Toronto Raptors point guard Kyle Lowry. Uh, I'm going to give you the first World Cup date of the 2019 Women's World Cup that's going on. We're going to talk about Game 7 of the NHL Finals very briefly, uh, talk about the new hot phrase, quote, it's above me now, and we're going to talk about graduation a little bit. But before we get started um, in the topics, let's talk about today in history. Uh, On this day, which is June 12th, In 1942, Anne Frank received a diary for her 13th birthday, which many of us Americans know as a really important day in literary history, where that diary later uh, went on to be read by millions of people chronicling the awful events of World War II and the Nazi rule under Hitler. Obviously, we know through history that Hitler was not actually in charge, but was instead just a very influential man who was able to influence the leaders. And Anne Frank was just a little Jewish girl who chronicled what happened to her. But it gave us a lot of insight into what it was like for people during that time. And to have it be so raw and from the mind of a 13-year-old was a huge huge thing for history and for our understanding of those events. Later in 1964, we had Nelson Mandela sentenced to life in prison in South Africa, uh, specifically for conspiring to overthrow the state. Uh, We do know that he served only 27 years and actually later went on to become the president of South Africa uh, as he was leading the charge to end apartheid, uh, which was South African discrimination and segregation. And Nelson Mandela was huge for the civil rights movement, which was happening at about the same time that we were trying to end apartheid. Uh, the civil rights movement, the apartheid actually happened a little bit later, but Nelson Mandela being arrested in 1964, we know what was happening in the 60s in America as well. So we had those two countries fighting similar things at similar times, uh, us, ultimate, us being the U.S., ultimately, quote unquote, prevailing. A little bit earlier, and then after his release from prison, Nelson Mandela was able to help turn that country around as well. We also had, in 1967, the Supreme Court ruled that states cannot ban interracial marriages, which only three years after Nelson Mandela gets sentenced to life in prison, so as I said earlier, fighting civil rights, and the Supreme Court ruling that states can't ban interracial marriage was huge, while many people on both sides actually disagreed with interracial marriage due to the fact that the Supreme Court said regardless of your beliefs this isn't something that legally we can affect is very important so it's really cool to see that in the 60s we had the Supreme Court helping out obviously we are still fighting for actual equality but legally at least uh, the Supreme Court took a step in the right direction that time and has continued to do so a little bit of sports in 1991 The Bulls' first three-peat with Michael Jordan begins when they beat the Lakers in the series 4-1. So, obviously, NBA Finals is happening right now. On this day in 1991, Chicago got its first NBA championship, and 
the legend of Michael Jordan began, and we had him winning his first championship after having to fight with the bad boy Pistons of the 80s and not really performing for the first few years of his career. He was finally able to break through. We do obviously know that Michael Jordan continued to win, ended up winning six championships in total, uh, two three-peats, the first one starting today in 1991, the second one starting in 1996. Uh, we also had in 1994, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman were murdered. Now, we all know that allegedly the murder was committed by O.J. Simpson, but he was ultimately found not guilty. Uh, the famous, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit, where he tried on a glove found at the scene of the crime and it didn't fit his hand and therefore he was deemed to have not been able to commit the murder. Now, this is actually the first thing I want to talk about because this case is a landmark case in American history and based on our conversation last week about when they see us and the five boys who were wrongly accused, falsely accused, and falsely convicted of the rape and assault of a woman in Central Park, conversely, we have a murder where it seems fairly obvious to most people that O.J. Simpson was the one that committed this murder, or at least had something to do with it, and he was found not guilty on all charges. Now, keep in mind, this was in 1994, so we're talking only five years after we had the issue with the Central Park Five, and this case was interesting because O.J. Simpson was a very divisive person, so he actually became famous for being an NFL running back, um, and he went to college in Southern California, which is where he really started to garner his fame as he was a standout athlete, uh, saying things very, very infamously, uh, such as, I'm not black, I'm OJ, when asked about being black in America uh, in Southern California at the time of the L.A. riots, where we had people protesting police brutality at that time. And so it's very interesting that you would then have a man who allegedly uh, commits a murder and is not found guilty for it. At that time, regardless of what people actually thought happened, and oftentimes still today, people celebrated the acquittal of O.J. Simpson. And for most people, it wasn't so much that they were fans and they didn't want to see their favorite player go to jail, but it was just the fact that a man, more importantly, a black man, regardless of if OJ says I'm not black, I'm OJ, he's still obviously an African-American. And we had a black man who was in the legal system who came out on top. And especially in 1994, it didn't matter whether or not he was actually guilty. The important thing for us was that a man who was in the legal system came out with a win. And Moreover, because so many people believed that it was quote-unquote obvious that he was guilty, and the fact that he came out with the win was something that was unheard of, because there have been so many times where we, being African Americans, were innocent, and that didn't matter, the Central, five being, Central Park Five being 
a case that happened in very close uh, time to the O.J. Simpson trial. So when you have a history of being falsely accused and regardless of what was actually going on, being convicted of doing crimes, going back to the convictions that weren't necessarily in court, but convictions carried out by the Ku Klux Klan, where if we were accused of something, they automatically assumed we were guilty. They'd go to your house, take you out of your bed at night in front of your family, and then lynch you. So when you have a history of being considered guilty until proven innocent, to have it so that a black man who was accused of killing two white people, one of them being a white woman, to come out with a jury verdict of not guilty was something that was celebrated. And I'm not saying that we should celebrate it because he killed a white woman and got away with it, allegedly, or whatever the case may be. However, we can't, we have to recognize that it is a milestone victory for the race, unfortunately, to enter into a court setting and come out with a win. So, um, this also had me thinking about a Washington Post article that I read where Michigan law has done a, an awesome, awesome deep dive into wrongful, convic- wrongful convictions and actually what happens when people get exonerated. Um, and when I saw this article pop up on my Facebook feed, I was very interested in reading it because I saw it shortly after recording the last podcast where I talked about the Central Park Five. So I have just a few figures from that to truly point out the things that we talked about uh, last week and going into OJ have talked about this week about being wrongfully convicted and why OJ getting this win was such a big deal because of what happens when we are wrongly convicted um, and end up in the system. So... As it is often said, African-Americans only make up 12% of the population, although when you live in urban areas, it often feels like more than that. Uh, But any of us who are from an urban area and went to a state school that's in a college town, we know that 12% is absolutely the correct number. Uh, So we make up 12% of the population, and actually 46% of the exonerees. So 46% of the people who get falsely convicted of a crime... Um, and actually get exonerated are African-American, which is a pretty good number. Uh, almost half of the exonerees are black, but when you consider that only 12, we only make up 12% of the population, not as good a number. Uh, and 50, and we only represent 56%, or we do represent 56% of the life years lost to prison. So you, they part of their study, they included how many years of their lives, the falsely convicted people lost to prison. So what that number of 56% means is that when we are wrongly convicted, we are in prison longer. So they went further to define it that African-Americans spend 10.7 years in prison uh, when they're falsely accused versus 7.4 years for whites who are wrongly convicted. And people will often say, well, you should get better lawyers and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, if I didn't commit a crime, it shouldn't matter how good my lawyer is, I should not have to serve time for said crime. And it even goes down to 
when people are compensated for their time spent. So keep in mind in that last number, we spend an on average 3.3 more years in prison. So we're there longer, we being African-Americans. Um, but we actually receive $42,000 less per year spent than our white counterparts. So not only are we there longer, we are receiving less money. And it's not an inordinate amount of money. I mean, it's not a small amount of money. Uh, when you're looking at $42,000 per year less times the extra 3.3 years, we're talking over $125,000 in difference in compensation in total, and that's with us spending more time. So this is something that has been unfair for a very, very long time, and we need to appreciate the wins, especially the more recent ones where we have people who are actually innocent, not saying that OJ isn't innocent because he was proven innocent and the case has not been retried and so on and so forth. But when we have people who are innocent and getting falsely accused, it's a problem. When you have people calling the police on African-Americans who are doing nothing but minding their own business and going about their lives and enjoying their summers in a lot of cases, it becomes a bigger issue because of the high amount of wrongful convictions. And so evolving the police, especially in issues that could probably have been solved through talking anyway, even though they all were non-issues, even if they were an issue, try talking to the person first before you immediately call the police. So it's just important for us to remember that things like this are going on and how those things affect us. Now we're going to get into our news topics for today. And the first story I have happened in game four of the NBA Finals. Uh, as we talked about in the first episode, the NBA Finals is currently going on. Uh, Toronto is currently up three games to two uh, with the series heading back to Golden State for game six this week. Uh, but we're actually going to go back to game four uh, that took place in Golden State where we had an incident where those of you who watch basketball are very familiar with the courtside seating and how the players sit on one side of the court in folding chairs uh, just off the court and on the other side of the court and around other edges where there aren't players and coaches sitting, fans have similar seats, uh, most of which are within about five to seven feet of the sideline. So they're very, very close to the action. Uh, there's literally enough room to walk in front of the person who is sitting on either side of you without stepping on the court, but really only one person can do that at a time. It's a very small amount of space. Uh, very expensive seats. Really cool to be able to sit courtside and see these giant human beings moved with the grace that they do, and people pay a lot of money for those. And we had an incident, and this occurs fairly often, where a player is trying to save a basketball and runs towards the sideline uh, at full speed to try to get said basketball and either saves it or doesn't, and their momentum carries them into the crowd. This happens often when you buy these courtside seats. You know that this is absolutely something that could happen to you because it happens with a great frequency. Uh, there are really funny videos of people like Shaquille O'Neal who is at the time seven feet tall and well over 300 pounds actually leaping over people in the front row of the courtside seats which was just an amazing feat of athleticism we have other people uh, spilling beers and then the player reportedly bought him a new one there was one where a player fell into somebody's lap 
kind of spilled the beer, finished what was left, and then ran back on the court. So generally, it's uh, something where we get to see a great feat of athleticism or something funny or really just nothing at all because it's become part of the game. And in this case, what we had was Kyle Lowry, who is not that big of a guy, uh, probably somewhere in the 6'1 to 6'3 range, falls into the crowd onto a woman in kind of another person and is getting up and a man who is a couple seats over, so was not affected by Kyle Lowry throwing his uh, body into the sidelines, reaches over, pushes him, and throws some obscenities his way. This was seen on television because there are cameras everywhere, replays everywhere, and also because Kyle Lowry was going after the ball, the camera was following him. And immediately, this caught the eye of a lot of people because this is not generally the reaction to players throwing themselves into the crowd because it happens all the time, A. And B, the man who was visibly upset was not at all affected. He wasn't touched. None of his stuff was touched. He didn't have a beer spilled, nothing. And so it later came out that this man was actually Mark Stevens, who most sports fans have never heard of, but is an important figure in basketball because he is actually an investor of the Golden State Warriors. We know that NBA franchises are privately owned, and oftentimes they are majority owned by one person, but investor investing groups um, are generally helping the owner to fund the project. And so he is one of the investors in the Golden State Warriors. So this became a much bigger story because he's a representative of one of the teams, and more importantly of the team that the player who he pushed did not play for. And so now it not only is an issue for Golden State to protect the players, which is a phrase that we hear all the time, but it's also an issue for the league because he is an investor, which means he also has involvement with the NBA as an organization as opposed to just being a fan. So this happened. Everybody found out. They knew it was him. And what the league and Golden State decided to do was give him a $500,000 fine, which obviously is a large sum of money, and a one-year ban from the stadium uh, to begin now and go through the end of next year's postseason if Golden State does make it to the postseason, which we do expect them to, Um, which is kind of a big deal because Golden State is going to be opening a new stadium next year. Uh, Oracle Arena is the stadium they currently play in, located in Oakland. This is their last year playing in that stadium. They are then going to move to a stadium in San Francisco. And so as an investor, I'm sure that he was going to have a lot to do, at least financially, with the opening of the new stadium and obviously be invited to all of the ceremonies and all of those things, and he would not not be able to attend those things, which, cool, awesome, great. But this brings up a larger issue in that we have this mentality in sports where we kind of forget that the athletes are people. My first thought upon seeing that was not only was it an issue, but if something like that happened in in real life, it would have been handled completely differently. While if we were in like a high school gym or something, yes, that person would have obviously been removed from the stadium and probably told that they couldn't come back and attend the team's games and more and more on those things. But 
you also, if this was like a high school student per se, probably would have had parents wanting to press charges because a person, in this case a man and a player, was pushed and also verbally assaulted. And he did nothing to harm that person. And we kind of forget that while these athletes are super famous and they're very visible and they play for teams and we know who they are and we're following their lives, 24-hour news cycle, social media, all of those things, that they also are just people. So my first thought upon seeing it was Kyle Lowry should press charges because he did nothing, again, to provoke this human being and this human being both physically and verbally assaulted him. And now people might say, oh, that's super petty. He obviously wasn't hurt and all of those things, but that's not the point. The point is I was doing my job, and in this case going above and beyond in my job, and was verbally assaulted and physically assaulted by someone who I did nothing to. This also brings up this point that a lot of athletes bring up, and that not only do we forget that they are human, but we also often take the side of the owners. And us forgetting they're human is a problem as fans, but oftentimes owners kind of act as though owners, general managers, president of sports operations and personnel and everything act as though the players are not human beings. You even hear them referred to as assets. Anthony Davis is an NBA player who plays for the Pelicans, and he's recently said that I'm not going to resign with the Pelicans. I want to be traded. It's a whole sports story we're not going to get into. But the point that we are going to get into is in discussing who he could possibly get traded to, common phrasing is he can't go to that team. They don't have the assets, meaning they don't have players who are good enough to warrant a trade for Anthony Davis, who is one of the best players in the league. Basically, when you refer to us as assets, and I'm saying us as African-Americans because the majority of the league is African-American, yes, they use the term asset for white people as well, but there's a greater point that I'm going to get to. But when you refer to people, any people, whether it's in a company that does construction, whether it's in a company that does consulting, whether it's in a league, if you refer to people, so us being people, we all are in this, as assets and then say that we don't have the assets to get a deal done, you are essentially saying that you have a lot of products and none of those products are valued high enough or are worth enough to warrant this other product. Now, I understand that professional sports leagues are businesses, and this is the way that business is done, and you need to make sure that you're... Like, the goal is to obviously win a championship, put the best product on the floor, balance a bunch of things, run a business, make money, all of those things. Totally understand that. And I understand that um, in kind of a macro view and abstractly, players are assets because they perform and produce an output, and that output directly affects the bottom line and all of those things. I totally get that and how it works from a business realm and an economic sense. However, the use of the word asset when describing a human being often makes it so that we don't attach the same level of concern with the players because we so commonly hear them referred to as assets. 
So people's first thought was, oh, we need to protect the players because he's trying to do his job. And I appreciate that sentiment. However, we're not think we're only thinking of it within the construct of the NBA and not thinking in the larger sense that a man was assaulted. And the optics of a young black man being assaulted by an older rich white man and that rich white man facing no legal consequences. And then you have the generic apology. So Mark Stevens obviously, well, I'm not even going to say obviously because it doesn't always happen, but apologized publicly to no one's surprise. Um, And we have a little bit of what was said. So the NBA... Uh, gave their very generic statement that we expected from them. The conduct of Golden State Warriors investor Mark Stevens last night was beyond unacceptable and has no place in our league, end quote. Uh, on, after that, we got a fairly lengthy public uh, recognition of fault from uh, Mark Stevens, and it's long, but just a clip of it says, I hope that Mr. Lowry, referring to Kyle Lowry, the player, and others impacted by this lapse of judgment understand that the behavior I demonstrated last night does not reflect the person I am or have been throughout my life. End quote. He goes on to say more things. I struggle to believe in the cultural climate in which we live that a rich white man, a very rich white man, doesn't regularly view people and more specifically minorities who make significantly less money than him differently than he views the people who he regularly spends his time with. And for him to call it something as simple as just a lapse in judgment, I think undersells the underlying problem. And a lot of this goes back to the other things that we've talked about today, where we still live in a a society where we're consistently segregated from each other. There is very little cultural understanding between cultures, and it's not just minorities or majority, the majority population not understanding the various minority uh, populations' cultures, but also vice versa, where we're just not asked to intermingle in that way. And so it makes it so that people have an inherent bias towards the people whom they grew up around, which is something that is not unreasonable. These are the people I'm very comfortable with. This is the people that I saw. I may feel differently towards people who don't look like these people who I grew up around, especially if those people who I grew up around also look like me. And when you add the money aspect into it and the income and more specifically the wealth aspect of it into it then you're now touching on this very very old distinction between the majority and generational wealth and the minorities and generational poverty and while you may say oh these NBA players make millions and millions of dollars and they do all of these things, you need to understand that while the NBA players do make millions of dollars, they are doing a significantly large portion of the work, and they are worth more than the millions of dollars that they're making because the people who own the organizations for which they work, the teams, 
make billions of dollars. And so when you have the league like the NBA and the NFL and hockey limiting the amount that you can pay these people, it makes it so that as an owner, I can make more money because while these players may be worth million, $800 million over the course of four or five years, I can only pay them a limited amount because that's what the league said. And so we often side with the owners, even though, because we go, oh, this person left our team. This person did the team bogus. This person was petty towards the team. And really, we are taking that personally because we root for that team, and I completely understand that. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that they are trying to maximize the income that they can make off of their hard work just the same as the team is trying to maximize the income, although the team has a system that allows them to make more money than the player does. I said all that to say we as everyday lay people and sports fans need to make sure that we don't forget that these players are people and I will say people just like us because yes although they're worth millions of dollars they're still working for someone who is making more money than them off of the work that they are doing and they're often not treated as such and that's just something that we should keep in mind and consider and remember to do moving on to a much less heavy topic we're going to talk about the World Cup Uh, the World Cup uh, took or started last Friday with France uh, emerging victorious in their first match of the World Cup and the first match of the World Cup as the host city. They got to play in the first match and they had the entire day to themselves. Most of the other days had two or three games happening. Uh, so France emerges victorious and then in the first game and we had the U.S. who actually played the last first game, which I know sounds weird, but of when the team's playing their first game, they played in the last of those, uh, which took place yesterday, which was Tuesday, June 11th. And we had some records set. Uh, they played Thailand, who is not the strongest competitor in women's soccer, um, and for them, just making the World Cup was pretty huge. Um, and so we had the U.S., who the last time they played Thailand... Uh, beat them nine to nothing, which was a crazy score. Actually, scoring thirteen goals, beating Thailand thirteen nil is what you would actually say in soccer. And it was interesting because number one, if you watch the game, they completely dominated both halves, but only managed to score three goals in the first half and then put up another ten in the second, which was pretty cool to watch. But we also had this debate happening all day all over social media, all over sports sites, even on like regular news channels about the U.S. running up the score and putting up 13 goals. And so the common argument that was made, there were two common arguments made. Number one, in group play of the World Cup, goal differential matters. And with Thailand being not that strong of an opponent and Sweden also having to play them, it behooved the U.S. to score as many goals as possible just in case Thailand beat, or sorry, Sweden beat Thailand like eight or nine to nothing then, like, that 13 goals would actually be useful. That was the first one. The second one was there were five of the 11 starters for the United States and a lot of the reserves as well were playing in their first World Cup. 
So a lot of them were scoring their first or maybe second, because a few of them scored multiple times, a World Cup goal. So obviously they're going to celebrate because this is something they've been working their whole lives for. Um, Lindsay Horan is a person who even forwent her college education to play professionally in Europe to try to reach a level where she could make the U.S. national team and all of these. So people were going, it's their first one. They should be able to celebrate. In talking to former soccer players, um, actually talking to soccer players who have played on a professional level and an international level and talking about what happens when things like that happen, the consensus was you want the team to keep trying to score on you because it is significantly more disrespectful for them to take their foot off the gas and just kind of pass the ball around you and play keep away than it is for them to just play the sport. It was also said that you know if your team is overmatched, but you would like to continue to get better. And so having to play a full 90 minutes, which is a full game in soccer, and continue to try to counter things, you learn things about your team, you learn things about tactics, and overall you get better if you have to play a full 90 minutes, even if somebody beats you 30 to nothing. Whereas it's embarrassing for them to just play keep away as if they're the schoolyard bully who took your hat and just won't let you have it back. And I have to say, I agree with him. We're all, well, in this case, they're all professionals. And we're just going to keep running our system. And if it's working, it's working. Thailand actually did make some pretty good defensive plays. And you could see that although the U.S. started scoring more goals in the second half than they did in the first half, it wasn't that Thailand was executing at a lower level. It was that the U.S. was just making better plays. But you could see that the women on the Thailand national team did not seem to be like ups like they didn't at least appear to be uh, visually upset about the U.S. scoring all those goals obviously they were upset that they were giving up points but it didn't look like they were upset about the celebrating and it didn't look like that they were upset that the U.S. was still trying difficult or still trying hard um, it looked like they were in a difficult situation and they were trying their hardest. And you could see that some of the players actually got better throughout the course of the game and learned some things or were able to defend some things. So with all of that being said, I'm going to side on the side of the people who said it wasn't a problem. And I don't mind the celebrating either. Goals in soccer almost never happen. Alex Morgan scoring after her fifth goal is okay because she tied a record for the most goals scored. Megan Rapino, who has scored tons of goals and is a veteran, it doesn't make it less exciting when you've been working for the last four years to get back here, especially as a defending champion, and you get to score a goal. It's not something in soccer that happens that often. You think about how many times Steph Curry has hit a three-point shot in his very short career, and then you think about Abby Wambach being the all-time international goal leader with 182, which is a very high number for soccer, but... Steph Curry, in his greatest regular season, hit 400 threes in a season. And Abby Wambach had 182 goals for her career. It doesn't happen often. Let him celebrate. Uh, just a couple other updates. We had Australia actually lose their first match to Italy, which was a huge upset, uh, especially considering Italy has not qualified for the World Cup since 1999 having four World Cups happen between their last qualifying uh, and this qualifying. And they were able to 
Edge Australia two to one. Sam Kerr, who we talked about uh, in the previous episode, actually was that one goal for Australia. And the goal scorer for Italy actually scored what's called a brace in soccer, which means she had two goals and was very close to a hat trick as the first goal she scored was taken off the board because it was said that she was offside. We also had Argentina draw with Japan, which was huge because Japan was seen as the favorite in that group. And Argentina didn't have a women's soccer team for all of 2016 and 2017 as the, the Argentinian or Argentine Soccer Federation was so low on funds, they just defunded the women's program. So them qualifying work for the World Cup was a miracle. And while for a lot of us Americans in our American sports where we don't really do ties or draws, as they call them in soccer, really huge for these women to get a point in the group stage as it was the first point that the Thai women's national team has ever scored in a World Cup. Uh, After the break, we are going to talk about a little bit of hockey talk about a guy at the Holiday Inn and how he handled an interesting situation, and then we're going to talk about graduation. So we'll see you in a bit. All right, and we're back. So very briefly, the last sports story we're going to talk about is Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final. Uh, It is actually in Boston tonight. I am watching the intros as I record this half of the podcast. Uh, Boston won game six in St. Louis. And so with them having home ice advantage, uh, game seven is taking place in Boston. Uh, Game sevens actually don't happen that often in the Stanley Cup final. And interestingly enough, the last time we had a game seven in the Stanley Cup final was eight years ago where the Boston Bruins beat the Vancouver Canucks in Vancouver. Uh, the goalie for St. Louis is 13-2 and two, uh, coming off of a loss, so he's really good coming off of a loss. However, Boston does have home ice advantage. The team who scores first in Game 7 often wins, and we have the Blues who haven't won and haven't even been to a Stanley Cup in 49 years and definitely haven't won one. Boston has had a run for the last about 15 years or so of being pretty relevant in hockey. So it's going to be really interesting to see who wins. Uh, I originally picked Boston in six, so obviously I'm still saying go Boston, hopefully Boston in seven. And they're actually getting Grichuk, uh, a player who was injured and taken out of the series early on due to a concussion. Uh, from an illegal hit by a Blues blues player where he was suspended for a game. Grichuk is actually coming back for Game 7, which is going to be huge for Boston as he's a pretty key player uh, for them, and they are trying to win this game to win yet another Stanley Cup. Moving on from that, uh, we're going to talk about this new phrase, our latest viral meme, quote, it's above me now. If you haven't seen... The video, haven't seen the phrase, it's above me now, in a meme form, then you obviously have no forms of social media. Uh, For those of you who do, you know that it's been pretty funny in the memes, and the origin story is actually very interesting, uh, and we're going to get into that a little bit. So it originated uh, in Austin, Texas, a Holiday Inn Express employee by the name of Craig Craig Brooks, uh, who's 26 years old. Uh, and is an African-American, went viral after he had a bit of a situation occur while he was at work. 
Craig Brooks is a front desk worker for a Holiday Inn in Austin, Texas, and he was doing his job when he had someone call trying to book a room. Fairly routine. He went through the spiel of how uh, the Holiday Inn has an online booking um, service, and that's how you book rooms over the phone, and he calmly transferred the lady. Seems pretty normal. Uh, She then called back very, very upset, saying that she needed to get a room, and he explained to her again that if she wants to get a room over the phone, she needs to use the online booking service, and he transferred her again. She called back a third time, verbally upset, and at this point, he asked her to not be hostile and explained the reservation line policy again, and then said... Uh, is there anything else I can do for you? And paused, waiting for a response for, from the lady who was on the phone, who he's assuming, based on his quotes from the pause, thought that he was no longer on the phone. And he heard her, he heard her husband, or a man on the other end of the line who he assumed was her husband, asking her something. And she mumbled something, but very clearly said, this quote and this quote is according to Craig Brooks uh, he because he was being quoted decided not to curse and he said effing n-word and he said that his response on the phone was excuse me and the lady immediately hung up and so I'm if I were him I would just be going well that's unfortunate obviously I didn't appreciate that but he was close to his shift ending and going on about his day what he didn't expect was for the woman to then come in to the Holiday Express. And so obviously she came in just as upset as she was on the phone, uh, explaining that she needed a room at the Holiday Inn Express, although what Craig Brooks had done, just in case the lady come in, was call management and let them know the situation, and they said that they have a zero-tolerance policy on racism and that he was allowed to refuse her service. So when she came in, he calmly did and said, I'm sorry, ma'am, you're not going to be able to stay here. She was saying all kinds of things. Uh, we believe, based on the story that I read, that her mother died and her, a large portion of her family was staying at that Holiday Inn Express, and so she wanted to get a room there. And so um, he very calmly, and he actually recorded this exchange, um, which I completely understand based on what we talked about earlier with people often falsely accusing African Americans, especially African American males, um, doing things that we obviously did not do. He recorded his version. He recorded himself, and the exchange did not record the lady, but she could be heard on the phone, and he kept repeating, it's above me now. Very calmly, it's above me now. Uh, A couple times he threw in the Best Western next door. The lady went on to keep saying, well, my mom died. I need to stay at this hotel. My family's staying at this hotel. Uh, After the video, after he turned off the video, the lady's family came downstairs saying those things. He was saying, sorry, ma'am, I'm not going to be able to give you a room. It's above me now. And so before I read the article, I was kind of under the assumption, and this is the same assumption that a lot of people made, and there was actually a really funny Urban Dictionary clip that was posted on social media well, as well saying that it's above me now was referring to putting it in the hands of God and letting God handle it and letting God, quote, fight my battles for me, which is really funny. And as someone who does attend church, that is some, that's a common phrase that you hear in not just a Christian religion, but in many religions as well. Um, and it's actually interesting to find out that he could have meant that being an African-American from Texas, which is a predominantly Christian state. 
Uh, but he could have also simply meant I spoke with the managers whose position is quote unquote above mine. And I've already taken it up to management, as they say. And it's above what anything I can do. They told me to refuse you service. So I'm refusing you service. Um, but it became viral partially because the phrasing was just hilarious. It's above me now. And uh, how calmly he said it. But I also think because we had an African-American being berated, being called out of his name, and he was able to remain extremely calm in the situation and not fight verbal violence with verbal violence and instead fight with the calmness that we are often taught to use. And it's actually funny because reading the article, I believe the article I read was on Deadspin, uh, where they talked to him. He said that a lot of his friends and family were making fun of him because they were saying that's not how he normally would have handled it. And so he was saying how he was super glad that he, A, recorded the exchange, B, was smart enough to call management before, and C, for whatever reason, that day was just in a good enough mood to be able to keep his calm. And I think it's unfortunate that we have to reward people for keeping calm in this, those situations, not because that's what we should expect, but because people should not have to deal with situations like that. Uh, and so I just thought it was really funny that we had a meme come out of this, but it raised a more important conversation about how when people are in customer service, they are often forced to deal with people treating them in ways that most people would consider to be unfair, and they are the ones expected to do the right thing, and we often don't hold those other people accountable. So I appreciated that this 26-year-old guy was able to keep his cool and not only make his race look pretty good, but also provide some pretty awesome social media content. This week's one more thing slash another one, I still haven't really decided what I'm going to call it, um, but what we're going to talk about this week, and this is kind of the part of the podcast where if something's been bothering me either recently or for a while and I just haven't been able to express it or I've expressed it to some people and just want to kind of talk about it on a larger platform, um, Sometimes it's going to be me going on kind of a rant like I did last week with GIF versus GIF, and that's actually going to happen this week as well. But this is a conversation that I've been having with people a lot. So this past Saturday, I attended a high school graduation uh, for the students at a high school where I used to work. I worked there for just about a year. It was the spring semester of 2018 and then the fall semester of 2018 before taking a job at Loyola. Um, but the, I worked in a high school in the inner city of Chicago and West Garfield Park. And as a young African-American who is from Chicago, went to Chicago public schools, I related a lot to these kids. And so I have tried to remain present in their lives as much as possible. I make fairly frequent visits to the schools, try to show up for events. Um, and in exchange, I've been told by the kids that I absolutely have to attend their graduations. So I was at graduation this year for these seniors, and then I will have to go next year for the juniors, and then the following year for who are now the sophomores, because those are the students I primarily worked with. Um, but I attended graduation, and it was such an awesome experience, because you have these students, many of whom are from homes that would be statistically considered in poverty, many of whom, or all of whom live in what are considered poor and quote-unquote dangerous neighborhoods on the west side of Chicago, uh, many of whom would be considered a statistic. The uh, keynote speaker was actually, I believe it was the, th uh, he was a county commissioner, and he gave some statistics that he wanted the kids to remember 
and they involved things such as the below 50% graduation rate for CPS students, how many African-American males have a record, how many, um, what the percentage of the imprisoned population in Chicago is African-American. And that resonated with these kids because a lot of them either have been in those situations, been in similar situations, or know somebody who has. And so what I was completely taken by was the excitement of the students. Uh, with me working there last spring, I attended that class's graduation as well. Um, but these are the first two inner city graduations that I've ever attended. And last year's was fairly tame and normal. The kids were a little more excited than I'm quote, I'm used to seeing, but it was refreshing. But this year's kids were so phenomenally excited and it was amazing. This is the school has been open for seven years now, I believe I might have it wrong. It might be eight years, uh, but this is their fourth graduating class. And this class had the highest GPAs of any class and the uh, highest SAT scores. And there were, I believe the number is 56 graduates and they collectively earned over $4 million in scholarship money. So really awesome class. Uh, but their sheer excitement at the accomplishment of graduating high school. And it wasn't just the kids who, based on their situations, would be considered as likely to not graduate. It was the kids who had, had kept their grades up all through grade school, had incredibly high GPAs while in high school, are going to prestigious colleges, most of them, most of the higher GPAs on uh, at least a more than 50% scholarship. But the kids, when they were walking into the Malcolm X gym, when the graduation music was playing and they were processing in, weren't just walking in. We had kids running in as if their name was called for the starting five of the NBA championship, and it was game one. Running in, hyping up the crowd, high-fiving strangers, hugging family members, hugging each other, and just the sheer joy of them accomplishing this thing that I'm sure so many of them have been told so many times that they would never accomplish was incredible. One of the greatest events I've ever attended. And I said all that to say, can we please stop calling everything a graduation? We have this tendency in our society currently to want to reward things that kids do, which I totally appreciate. And I think we should recognize the accomplishments of children. That's absolutely important. However, every time a kid moves to another grade, it's not a graduation. If you look up the definition of graduation, it actually says the receiving or conferring of an academic degree or diploma. What we forget, and I don't even think it's forget, I think it's more ignore, is while moving from kindergarten to first grade is really adorable and moving from eighth grade to high school is a major step in development. The only time you actually receive a diploma is when you graduate from high school because the American education system is K through 12. Moving from eighth grade to ninth grade is not a graduation. It is a promotion. You have been promoted to the next grade. And I think what has happened is the accomplishment that is graduation has been watered down because we call so many things graduation. I'm tired of seeing kindergartners in caps and gowns on my social media feeds. They did not graduate. 
they just didn't hit the kid next to them, can count to whatever arbitrary number we decided kindergartners should be able to, can recognize all 26 letters, and probably can write their name. That's not a graduation. And frankly, I don't even think that's a promotion, but I don't have kids. I'm probably going to feel a little bit differently when I have kids, want to have a ceremony. I get that. But let's not call it graduation because they didn't get a diploma. Most of the time, the rolled up piece of paper doesn't really say anything on it. Not graduation. Eighth grade to ninth grade. Very important in the adolescent development of a child. High school is very different than middle school or elementary school, depending on how your school system views it. Not a graduation. When you go to a graduation, the focus is often on what has already been accomplished. That's what they talk about in college. That's what they talk about in high school. They do also talk about in high school moving on to college, but they talk about how you completed this thing. When you graduate from kindergarten, it's all about, oh, I'm about to go to first first grade. If you graduate from eighth grade, it's, oh, I'm about to go to high school. Not a graduation. By dictionary definition, eighth grade is not a graduation. Should we have programs to recognize the accomplishments of students through that point? Absolutely. Stop calling it graduation. You graduate when you receive a high school diploma. You graduate when you receive any sort of collegiate degree, whether it be an associate degree, bachelor's, master's, doctorate, what have you. You do not graduate when you move on from eighth grade to ninth grade. Save graduation for when we actually accomplish something so we can truly recognize the weight of that accomplishment. Graduation is for high school, college, grad school, all of those things, not kindergarten, fifth grade, eighth grade. That's all I've got for this week. This week, Thanks so much for listening. As always, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you haven't already, subscribe, rate, review, please, and thank you. I know I have at least one review and a couple of ratings, uh, so those of you who are listening, please do that. If you're listening on SoundCloud, uh, follow and comment, and you can also like each episode individually and comment individually. That'd be awesome. And if you're listening on Spotify, uh, just like, as always, if you have something negative to say and you're not going to rate me five stars, please, instead of rating me lower than four, just at me on social media. Uh, my, you can at me, and also my DMs are open. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at dubr1617 and on Instagram at dubr16. Uh, again, thanks for listening, and later days. Mm-hmm.